Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth. Brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors. Hello and welcome to McKinsey on Startups. I'm Daniel Eisenberg. In recent years, the pressure from investors on already successful, well-funded startups to keep growing faster and faster has been intense. Reaching a $100 million valuation, a notable achievement in its own right, left little time to celebrate. The venture capital firms that invest in these companies expect their value to reach a billion or more and to do so quickly, yet less than one in 10 managed this feat in under four years. Earlier this year, a McKinsey team featuring Kim Baruti, Giacomo Dolce, Sid Romtree, and Harry Schiff set out to better understand that dynamic, to learn exactly why it is that so many already successful startups struggle to maintain their rapid pace of growth and attain the elusive unicorn status, and as part of that, to learn what the relatively few who do thrive at the next level do differently. The result of that research is their recent McKinsey article, entitled Hard Choices, How Europe's Fastest Growing Startups Become Unicorns. We're excited today to be joined by one of the co-authors of the piece, associate partner Sid Romtree. Sid also happens to be part of our amazing production team for this podcast. In our wide-ranging conversation, Sid explains the key findings of the research, which identify principles to guide leaders of European scale-ups through some of the critical trade-offs and decisions that mark this period in their development. The biggest takeaway was, as Sid notes, that founders are going to invariably struggle with the question of where exactly they should focus, especially because so many founders essentially grew up in this particular super cycle with this focus pushed by investors of growth at all costs. Now that the boom time funding environment has notably downshifted amid rising interest rates, inflation, and slowing economic growth, as well as recession fears, the lessons of what it takes to focus and succeed with a more calibrated, efficient kind of growth are more relevant and important than ever. Still, the lessons outlined in this forward-looking manifesto, as Sid puts it, should matter regardless of where you are in the macro funding cycle. So now let's get to my conversation with Sid Romtree. Welcome to the podcast, Sid. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. When you and the team decided to kick off the, this research and, and study the, the scale-up to unicorn journey in this way, what really drove that decision? I think in some respects, we were just fascinated by the fact that the rate of unicorn creation in Europe after a lean period had accelerated so meaningfully. I think to my memory, 86 unicorns were created in Europe in the year 2021 versus 10 or fewer than 10 in the period from 2012 to 2017, 2018. So what we wanted to try and understand is what are the lessons that these companies could actually share with younger companies that were seeking to get to unicorn status um, in terms of decisions that they should be taking proactively and in terms of things that they should not be doing. You started this research before the capital environment began to change dramatically earlier this year. From your vantage point, how are founders, especially scale-up founders, responding to the changing macroeconomic and fundraising conditions these days? Yeah, it was a tough time, a strange time in some respects to actually begin this work, because I think it was right around the time that we sort of hit the quarter point of getting this research done that uh, the market environment started to push down. There had been, just on account of the macro conditions, a very, very heavy emphasis on growth across all parts of their organizations, starting from the top. And there was a desire at this point in time to start to think about how that dynamic needed to be recalibrated. Uh, with a greater focus on efficiency and with a greater focus on selective investments in 
what we could consider uh, moats, which is the ability to try to invest in the places that help build a competitive advantage over time. The macro environment was not necessarily a critical component of the research. It absolutely wasn't. And I think in some respects, that through cycle focus, that desire to basically focus on the kinds of actions that should matter regardless of where you are in the macro cycle, ended up actually becoming more important as the crisis started to intensify. Because I think the larger question that we were starting to get from you know, folks who observe venture capital, from investors themselves, uh, from founders and to-be founders was to say, things are getting tougher for scale-ups. What are the things that we should have been focused on leading into this crisis? What we wanted to do was basically ask ourselves, what are the lessons that other companies have actually learned the hard way? What are the mistakes that they made? How did they recover? Uh, and therefore, how can we lay out this forward-looking manifesto for companies to follow that is classically relevant regardless of where you are in the macro cycle? What do you think is the most important takeaway from the research? I think the biggest takeaway is the fact that founders are going to invariably struggle with the question of where exactly they should focus, especially because founders that essentially grew up in this particular super cycle, which really began from the time that we started to see interest rates sort of hit record lows well over a decade ago, uh, are used to this focus pushed by investors on growth at all costs. And, you know, if you double, it's not good enough, you need to have 5x. If you have 5x, it's not good enough, you need to have 10x. Going ahead and almost unlearning the lessons from that and trying to basically focus on a more calibrated, a more efficient kind of growth is far and away the most important sort of takeaway that came away from our research. And we had the opportunity to conduct well over 50 to 75 interviews over the course of this research. Uh, it was very interesting to see the kinds of day-to-day -day challenges that, that founders were facing with respect to making that kind of recalibration. Because, you know, there's the question of sort of setting the overall mandate, of course, but there's also a bigger question as to how you really unwind in some respects a broader culture, a way of thinking around this question of growth to now tell everyone in your organization, we need to pull back, we need to be selective, we need to be extremely thoughtful in the way that we do things. And that has implications for the way you spend as a company. It has implications for the way you hire, the way you market, the way you price. I'm just curious, in this balancing of efficiency versus growth, in your view, does the, does the tighter capital environment now mean that balancing should ideally be a little easier for founders since efficient growth is supposed to be sort of the name of the game? Well, not necessarily easier. I think there is now a more explicit requirement because the investors themselves are going to demand it. And we see that sort of across the investor ecosystem, right? In terms of VCs going ahead and putting money to work far more cautiously, LP pressures on these VCs increasing as well. But I think that doesn't necessarily remove the challenge that the founders have themselves. It's a painful decision for companies, especially operating in Europe, to go ahead and make choices with respect to saying, which markets do I need to sort of give up on? Which markets do I need to withdraw from? from? Because the reality is the fact that I just no longer have the capital runway to you know, take the next one to two to three years just in order to basically prove that I have a large total addressable market. So how do I go ahead and actually exit these markets? 
And how is it that I sort of make a more concentrated bet that is more focused, that is more effective on perhaps one or two markets that are more accessible to me, a lot closer to home, but then can obviously sort of like go ahead and drive better results, right? It's going to take a little time for founders to go ahead and get that equation right. Uh, there's a recognition on behalf of the founder community that this needs to be done, but there will be mistakes made along the way. There will be some tough decisions delayed, which could cause pain for certain startups as well. Uh, I would argue those that sort of learn the lessons sooner and are willing to take the bolder bets to pull back in the same way that they took bold bets to push forward um, are going to be the ones that actually end up finding themselves in a better position once this crisis hopefully and finally recedes. You talk about geographic expansion. Um, that was certainly one of the most interesting findings, that geographic was, was most common strategic priority among scale-ups, but many came to regret that decision. Why do you think it is that so many startups are initially attracted to this idea of geographic expansion? Um, and why is it that the more successful and faster growing ones uh, tend to actually focus first on product expansion? So not to go ahead and sort of cast the entire blame on the capital markets environment, but when you are operating in a space where top line growth matters above everything else, the reality is the fact that you're going to focus on demonstrating to the market that you have the largest potential TAM, number one, and that number two, your ability to ex access that TAM uh, is extremely robust. And I think it's the reason why in our research, we discovered that 61% of the companies we surveyed absolutely cited geographical expansion among their top three. Um, and as you were alluding to before, more than half of these companies ultimately admitted that they came to regret that prioritization. Because the reality is the fact that you can maintain those very large burn rates as you keep growing into these new geographies, if the capital environment happens to sort of facilitate that, if the focus is almost basically going from one founding round to another, now that the capital has started to dry up, the question is, there's a natural focus on your operating fundamentals in each of these geographies. And if you have not been able to get to some semblance of positive unit economics in a geography, um, it starts to get problematic. You guys talked in the article about the idea of the key to being successful when expanding geographically is focusing more on accessibility versus sheer size. Can you just talk briefly about, about those findings? Yeah, I mean, definitely. The accessibility versus size conundrum became extremely clear in our surveys as well as our long-form interviews. Uh, if I were to think about players, for instance, that are active in grocery delivery, uh, the reality is the fact that many of these companies found themselves in positions where moving to different micro markets was the only thing that mattered. And what that ultimately meant was that they would go ahead and essentially seek the largest possible total addressable market, which oftentimes for companies in Northern Europe, by way of example, means that they would sort of like want to look to the United Kingdom, want to look to parts of Southern Europe. And what that ultimately meant is the fact that since there were very meaningful cultural differences, since the entire operating playbook had not been stabilized, since decisions to go ahead and actually hire ranks ranging from country manager down to folks at the actual operations floor are sort of executed in haste, you end up basically finding yourself in a position where you do have the label of saying that you are already operating in X countries and scaling into Y more. 
but the burn rates that you're essentially managing are far higher. And obviously, when the capital environment turned, it became clear to a lot of these companies that they really had no choice but to go ahead and actually make a strategic pullback in order to essentially shore up their own balance sheets. What would the accessibility approach mean? It would mean that you take a very careful and considered decision looking at places that actually have a market structure um, and a competitive landscape that is similar or at least consistent with what you happen to have in the one market, potentially your home market, where you have a sense of stability and are already showing or have already achieved uh, a position of positive unit economics. Uh, it means that you will take a very considered decision with respect to asking yourself, who are the right kinds of talent that I already have in the organization, who I know could actually cut it in that kind of new environment because it's accessible, because it's familiar, or do I actually have a very clear and effective plan on the ground with respect to the top one to two to three thoughtful hires I would want to make in order to go ahead and actually create that new operation in this new accessible market? And from that point on, go ahead and build out. One of the other interesting things that we discovered that almost relates to this point of lack of focus on the part of founders is that oftentimes moving into a new market was sort of considered an afterthought because when you're doing so many markets, the founder attention itself ends up getting fragmented. So, you know, the ability of a founder to actually spend time on the ground in that new market, almost make it his or her new home in order to actually demonstrate to the organization that it's a real priority, to demonstrate to everyone else that they're helping set the tone in terms of needing to have focused execution becomes incredibly important. In terms of product expansion, what is it about that that tends to lead to more success? That was a very significant finding as well within our sample. Uh, fa the fastest growing and therefore the ones who got to a billion dollar valuation were twice as likely to go ahead and cite product expansion as a top three priority. And none of them happened to regret it. And I think the principal reason why is because product expansion is extremely consistent with those three strategic imperatives of growth, efficiency, and moat building that I happened to describe at the very beginning. Um, to try and make that more concrete, product investment, product expansion can help drive growth in terms of opening new customer segments or driving increasing spend from existing customers. It can drive greater efficiency because launching new products that are basically targeted at your existing customers does go ahead and actually imply either low or no customer acquisition costs. And lastly, it does help strengthen your moat because the broader a portfolio of services that you offer to a company, the more you happen to quote unquote, lock in a customer effectively as well. To try and provide you with an example, we investigated a data intelligence company in Europe, um, which made this consistent choice to essentially become a one-stop shop for customer data management needs, saying we're focusing increasingly just on our product and that we sort of like want to bide our time with respect to driving geographical expansion. The burn rates were lower, the ability to sort of like actually build out a strong company with a clear concerted culture was a lot easier. And I don't mean to suggest that companies should just basically do away with the idea of geographical expansion, but I think it's a matter of basically calibrating what is the right moment in which you actually want to go 
very heavy on that international expansion versus essentially thinking that because capital happens to be available, because you're essentially living in this, you know, artificial environment where fundraising has to sort of be a norm every 12 months, that you essentially just want to go after market, after market, after market. Right. You guys talked in the article about how acquisitions for products, IP, or people tend to be so much more successful than merely buying a company for its presence in a new geographic market. Um, can you just talk briefly about that? What we discovered is that companies that go ahead and drive M&A purely for the purposes of geographical expansion also tend to go ahead and essentially overestimate the level of synergies that they believe that could be realized via combination. Uh, there were multiple examples in multiple spaces. Think retail tech, think fintech as the two most prominent categories where interviews ultimately revealed that only no more than 5 to 10% of actually promised synergies existed by the time a combination was made between two companies that were coming together for geographical expansion. On the other hand, when you think about product-driven acquisitions or acquisitions that involve IP and people, these are very much seen as almost foundational assets. In the case of ready products, there's potential to obviously sort of like build out a broader ecosystem and strengthen the moat earlier. And I think in the case of IP or people as well, right? I mean, aqua hires, by way of example, can go ahead and infuse a new kind of talent into a company and really sort of like speed up certain processes related to product development and things of that nature. On the people front, I always find it interesting that scale-ups can be quite conservative about adjusting their leadership and management team as the company has evolved from its early days. You guys found that the most successful scale-ups and unicorns replace a number of key suite C-suite roles after their first scale round. Um, can you talk about why you think it is that too many of these scale-ups fail to move, make that adjustment um, on the leadership front? Sure. Perhaps to try and reflect on the statistics and learnings that we actually drew from our work, 30 to 35% of the scale-ups that grew from $100 million in valuation up to a $1 billion within a four-year period um, went ahead and actually replaced either their product, financial, and or marketing C-level executive. On the other hand, the companies that did not make it to a billion-dollar valuation in four years, it was only 15% of those that actually went ahead and did that exact same change, which is a striking difference in some respects, right? I think as we dug into this through conversations and interviews, what became clear is the fact that there is a tendency to basically want to stick around with the status quo in the sense of saying it got us here, we need to sort of like keep up the same pace and operate the same way. I think also when you're when you're unconditionally focused on a growth mindset, there's very little space and oxygen for a founder to take a step back and actually ask himself or herself, what are the alternative ways in which I could actually be adding value? Or have I thought very carefully about how we as a top team work with one another Oftentimes, there's the tendency to sort of like want to fill out roles in junior positions to go ahead and essentially, you know, address talent gaps. The reality is the fact that there's very little time dedicated to the question of saying, where are the talent gaps at the very top? In a lot of instances, for instance, even when speaking to very successful founders, there was a bit of a recognition where founders were able to talk about how 
they ultimately realized that once a company reached a particular phase of growth, they just weren't the right operators in order to go ahead and actually take it to the next level. And the mature ones, in some respects, were the ones who were actually willing to go ahead and take a step back and say, I'm happy to initiate a CEO search in place of myself. I'm happy to go ahead and rise to the level of chairman of the board. I'm happy to remain as an advisor. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you know my influence within the company is finished. It means that my role has evolved, obviously, uh, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, I think one of the other things that we ended up discovering was how critical hiring into people roles is, right? Uh, oftentimes, culture is definitely defined by founders, especially as companies happen to be in an early stage. Even as companies grow bigger, you know, the tone of the founder obviously sort of like sets the mark for what the culture of the company ought to be. But as headcounts grow, there is a need to take a much more strategic, a much more thoughtful and a much more deliberate approach to, let us say, building the right kinds of cultural interventions, in some case, even having the right kinds of policies in place in order to ensure that a company operates effectively. Um, that kind of activity doesn't lend itself to top-down commandments on the basis of a founder, right? And those are the moments in which founders come to the conclusion that I need to bring in a chief people officer and really sort of like step away from that frontline role of being the voice in all things people and culture, by way of example. I can't remember if you guys specifically asked founders and others about this, but the fact that, that capital was so free-flowing, did that just make it so much easier for certain folks not to focus? I would argue, yes. I would argue that almost reflecting on, you know, some of the first lessons that we gathered from this research is that there were certain through cycle lessons that should have always been in focus that a very, very bullish macro environment essentially pushed to the background. So if you are living in an environment where valuations are constantly on the rise and there's potential to go ahead and raise mega round after mega round, um, it naturally reflects very well, um, at least in a superficial sense, on the abilities of the management team. Um, and there is obviously a desire, which is entirely understandable in some respects, on the part of the founder to say, there's a great deal that's been done by me to get us here so far. I want to keep moving on with the journey. Um, and you're obviously encouraged by your investors to do the same. Um, when the focus on execution in the most micro sense across so many different functions, from the optimization of marketing spend to the development of culture in a moment where employees have to be unfortunately let go, two questions as to how you sort of like tighten up your supply chain and your operations. When each of these micro questions comes into such deep focus, because a pivot to unit economics becomes so incredibly crucial, is when I suspect that there needs to be a recognition on the part of founders and C-suites with respect to saying, now as I think about what needs to be done on a go-forward basis, where is it that the gaps actually exist? Where is it that I am potentially not playing as effective a role as I need to? Where is it that I potentially find myself a bit out of depth? And what is it that I need to change? 
The article's been out there for about a month now. What kind of feedback are you getting from founders or executives or investors? The feedback has been a general sense of appreciation around the fact that the surveys were able to essentially go ahead and shed light on the things that have actually gone wrong. It's been very easy to talk, even in quantitative terms, about the things that have gone right. Um, but I think, you know, hearing individual stories of what actually um, has bedeviled companies that have expanded too aggressively into foreign markets has been something that has been appreciated a great deal. Uh, perhaps one side story to that is the focus on how European companies naturally think about the United States as being, you know, the marquee market to get into and that oftentimes those kinds of moves fail. One of the things that we ended up discovering is that from a talent and human capital perspective, um, the founders who underperformed with respect to the US expansion were the ones who were in oftentimes not able or not willing to actually make a move to the US themselves, where they essentially treated the country as just another market, or in certain instances ended up making inferior choices with respect to who the country manager ought to be for that U.S. expansion. And what about the time horizon? In the article, you were looking at the four-year journey that had become sort of an expectation uh, from VCs of going from scale up to unicorn. Do you think that that time horizon is going to get longer? Um, or more pointedly, do you think there will be more tolerance for a, uh, a slower, steady growth it's tough to tell. I don't have a crystal ball, but I think what we have already seen in some respects is the fact that, um, you know, the pace of unicorn creation has slowed over the course of this year, right? Uh, there are bright spots across specific sectors, number one, and number two, across specific geographies as well, especially geographies that happen to sort of be a bit behind on the innovation curve relative to the United States, by way of example. Um, so, you know, could you go ahead and actually see, you know, a four-year journey or a five-year journey somehow no longer be the norm? Absolutely. I think the point that I would make is the fact that, you know, these dynamics naturally move in cycles. It's possible that a moderation of the time that it takes to get to unicorn, and in some respects, almost a de-emphasis from the title of being a unicorn and a focus on fundamentals, actually ultimately means that you end up having a much stronger, a much more vibrant, and a much more broad-based startup ecosystem in every part of the world across every sector. And the reason why I say so is because even through this year, uh, it's very clear that the dry powder that investors happen to have allocated to venture capital, by way of example, uh, has continued to go up and up. Um, the, you know, we could sort of see a bit of sluggishness and slowness in that entire process as we look to 2023. But I think all the same, there is a structural view that the rate of technological innovation continues to remain extremely rapid, uh, that the diffusion of these technologies happens to be occurring in a very impressive way from the developed world, from the north to the south, by way of example. Um, and what that ultimately means is the fact that you know, you are seeing a continued and very consistent growth of early stage companies. So while you aren't seeing those many later stage deals that sort of like create the big bang unicorns, what you are seeing is a lot more robust funding in some respects 
for seed stage companies, for series A companies, which if they continue to execute well, will absolutely be the new unicorns of tomorrow. Um, I've had the opportunity to be part of multiple startup events across Europe over the course of the past two to three months. And I myself was struck by how, you know, how robust and how excited uh, early stage entrepreneurs are uh, and how engaged and focused they are on actually trying to hunker down in what is admittedly a tough capital environment uh, to focus on proving out their ideas, to be as parsimonious as they can with the funding that they do receive in order to basically come out of this crisis with better progress on product market fit, on the business models that they happen to be developing, um, and therefore set themselves up for the right kinds of financing deals in the future. That's great to hear about the level of innovation and the focus on new ideas, early seed, uh, early stage investing, not just expanding existing startups. That's a great place to leave it at, uh, Sid. Thank you for uh, taking so much time to uh, to talk about your article, the research, and the general startup environment. Pleasure is mine. Thank you. That's it for this episode of McKinsey on Startups. Thanks, as always, to our stellar podcast production team, Molly Carlin, Sid Ramtree, Myron Shergan, and Polly Noah. And of course, thank you for listening. This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback, so please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth. Thanks for listening.